So is the volume all right then, Mark? Can you hear me? Let's see if this works. See, hang on. Let me try this one. Wait a minute. Brilliant. Perfect. I'm recording now. All right. Welcome to my 90s music podcast, the podcast where I talk to the people who live, love, and were in the eye of the storm of the best decade ever, the glorious 90s. Today is a cool as fuck episode as Clint Boone, yes, that's right, the five-star general of the Boone Army, DJ, podcaster, and in Spiral Carpets, keyboard hero, is in the house. I was so chuffed when Clint agreed to chat to me. It was like an old friend chatting away, although we'd never met before. It was absolutely superb. It's a bumper episode where we cover all things Clint, including the 90s, how the Inspiral started and how they progressed to stardom, and having a certain Gallagher brother as their guitar tech through that time too. And of course, we talk about what Clint is up to now. I'm in my studio, which is in the basement of the house. So occasionally you can hear people running about upstairs or the dog barking. In fact, I just heard the dog barking, then there's probably somebody at the door, but my wife will deal with that. <laughs> and what about you? What about your podcasting and stuff? How's that all going? Your series has been really good. Thank you. Um, at the moment, I'm sort of in between podcasts. I mean, I've done four series for the radio station. Mm. That's the Humans of Exus Manchester, yep. which I've really enjoyed. I mean, some of my best moments have been interviewing people, not even people from the music industry. Yeah, yeah. But like um, uh, Dr. Ellen Pankhurst who's the great-granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst. Yeah. So to be in a room with her and talk, you know, for an hour about the world and about her family, yeah. that was just incredible. You know, that was as exciting as interviewing Paul Weller, which I've done many times. You know, I've become friends with Weller over the years. But it's like to, to be in a room with a Pankhurst one-on-one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for that conversation that we had to be there forever, that'll be there long after I'm gone. That'll be up in, in the ether somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, and, but, I mean, the podcast that I did back in 2016, I don't know if you heard Storytime with Boone. It's like the, a lot of stories, me telling anecdotes about my life on the road with the Inspirals and yeah. raising kids and my parents. And it's, it, it's really personal, uh, very autobiographical. Uh, Storytime with Boone, it's still on iTunes. And up there. There's like yeah. 27, 28 episodes I did, and then I finished when our drummer died, when Craig died. Um, and that coincided with getting the job at XS Manchester, the radio show. So, if, if anything, that's my greatest work. I think the story time with Boone is the, the or it's, it's the stuff that I most enjoy doing yeah. because it's me thinking about, you know, my, my past and you, it tends to be very therapeutical and, and interesting because it, things, you know, chapters that I forgot about long ago, I'm suddenly yeah. remembering and getting onto the internet to find out what date did we play New York with the Inspirals when Depeche Mode turned up and hung out with those backstage. And I can find the date now on the internet. You know what I mean? It's all up there. So it's a real journey, you know, doing the story time with Boom stuff is a real journey. And it's all um, transcribed as well now. So that's a big part of what will become my book, ultimately, um, story time. Is there yeah, dates for that? What, for a book? Yeah. Uh, not yet. But the thing is, it's, I think once I say, let's do it, it'll be quite a short process in terms of finishing it off. Problem is, though, there's always these new, incredible chapters that, in my life. You know, like the way I accidentally became a radio presenter. I've had this career in radio for 16 or 17 years, full-time, I think. And just before Christmas, we got told that the radio station was shutting down. So that's 
about 40% of my income, that wage. Yeah, yeah. Not massive wage, but about 40%. But most of my income comes from DJing as a club DJ, an event DJ. So we got told before Christmas, the radio station's shutting down, so we don't need you from the end of March. We don't need you. And what they were doing, they were going to change the format of the station from alternative music to urban, which is right. why we weren't needed. It was going to become Capital Extra. Right. So before Christmas, we got told that this was happening. And that was like, to me, that was a massive, I've got to replace this income. I've got to find all the money, you know, because we do need, I'm not a well-off man. I, I think people think I'm richer than I am. I'm not that yeah. wealthy. I've got a massive mortgage. I've got a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I started doing was just getting loads and loads of DJ work in, a lot more DJ work. And my diary was filling up beautifully for the rest of 2020. And then suddenly we get told about the lockdown. Yeah. All my DJ work, 100% of my DJ work is gone. So that's the other 60% of my income. So I went into the lockdown yeah. at the beginning of March, mid-March, thinking this family is going to have no income. And then suddenly, I think two weeks into lockdown, we get a call. I got a call from the producer um, at the radio station saying, you'll never guess what, but Ofcom have said that the radio station can't be changed. It's got to stay as it is. Oh, great. So to the credit, the owners totally embraced you know, that decision and went with it. And it now looks like it's going to carry on indefinitely. Brilliant. Just if we can go back a wee bit. Yeah, totally, yeah, uh, yeah. I know it's supposed to be about the 90s, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's all like this moment in time that we're all in at the moment because we don't know where it's going, do we? And it's funny, I'm just I'm surrounded by reminders of this strange time. I do yeah. these, um, like, greeting cards and a cowogram. I call it a cowogram. Uh-huh. Telegram, but cowogram. Yeah. And you get... You, People send me a message. They want a message for the dad who they've not seen for three months or whatever. Um, or, you know, partners that are missing each other that are in, um, you know, isolation. And I always, I spend a lot of time making them, so it's a nice little piece of art. Um, but then I, I, I scan them before I send them out. And looking back through them, these hundreds and hundreds of really personal messages. Yeah. And it's like one day I'll look at that and it'll be a very... Um, graphic photograph of what was going on in the world you know what i'm saying so they have uh, yeah it's it's a it's a i feel guilt i feel guilty about i feel sad that the world is a lot of people in the world is suffering and a lot of people grieving now obviously and yeah um so i want some sort of normality to come back but in terms of you know the way of working uh and keeping those income streams coming in this will do for me for a while and pay, pays the life. Just when you're talking about the cow, um, I was racking my brains there. You drew one for me um, years ago. So you you were doing an in-store at Virgin in Glasgow. Right. And it was the single, would it be how it should be? Yeah, possibly, yeah. yeah. I had, did you have like the Kremlin or something? Or some yeah, it had a lot of um, young tourists, mainly girls, I think, that picture, wasn't it? Yeah. All looking at the Kremlin. Yeah. And there's one girl looking back at the camera. Uh-huh. It was an interesting photograph, that, because I, I've always been into photography, and I used to have um, the projectors that we used to use live on stage, like a lot of Kodak pro- projectors and things, to create this massive uh, montage of changing effects, you know, changing yeah. images. So I used to buy a lot of transparencies from junk shops. Uh-huh. And that's what the a lot of the images that you saw at the gigs were just junk shop slides and random pictures of cows that I'd taken. 
Yeah. But that picture of the people outside the Kremlin or whatever building it was, that was uh, from a junk shop. It was just a, a big bag of transparencies that I bought for a quid or something. And that was in there, you know what I mean? It was a cool um, shop. But I, I got, you signed the inside cover with a cow. I think everybody signed it. And then I gave, was Graham your guitarist? Yeah, yeah, Graham, yeah. So I gave Graham, I don't know, I was a kid. So I gave him my plectrum. And I said, oh, will you use that tonight? And he was like, oh, of course. Probably didn't. But anyway, I gave, I gave him that. And then uh, made a wee chat and all that. And uh, yeah. I think, were you not maybe playing the plaza around about then? I can remember doing Barrowlands a few times. We did the university on the, when it was up on the seventh or eighth floor. The, that would have been Strathclyde, Ginny? Up the hill? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's and that kicked uh, off that night. We had to evacuate the building because we oh. had a riot. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what happened? I can't remember the year, but it was one of our early gigs. Oh, God, what would it be? 80. It might have been 89, 88 or 89. Yeah. And it was a sold-out gig because it was when John Peel was all over us. So whatever we did, people knew about it and wanted yeah. to be there. Um, and the gig started. I, th- I don't think we were too far into the actual set. And if I remember rightly, somebody threw a can at the stage. Uh, like I'm sure it was Red Stripe, actually. I would have been, yeah. And it came, I think it's partly spilled on, on the keyboards and... So we stopped the, the song and I started to dry the keyboards off. And I think I threw the can back. So then more cans came this way. <laughs> so then Noel Gallagher, who was our roadie, obviously, was sat to my left and behind the PA stack, because I was always on the left-hand side of the stage. Yeah. Noel was behind the, the PA stack there with a full can of a full crate of our red stripes for the stage. And he just started... Oh, like grenades. <laughs> into the crowd so it just kicked off and we had to evacuate the stage and we cool. were backstage for a while and then it came the promoter I think persuaded us to come back on and then it all happened again yeah and then we ended up having to be escorted out of the building by the fire brigade <laughs> that's how serious it was the fire brigade came out because the building was evacuated yeah, yeah, somebody yeah. had set off an alarm a fire alarm in fact, I think, yeah, during the second kickoff, somebody had set the fire alarm off. So by the time the building was evacuated, the fire brigade came. Yeah, yeah. And they ended up taking us down a, a stairwell. Yeah. And we had to run down the street to get in our van where our, our manager, Binzi Anthony, <laughs> was sat in the van with the engine running. We all just dived in before the crowd started chasing us. Some of the crowd. It wasn't, you weren't on the hill for the, the van, were you? Because that's some hill yeah. start, that. Yeah, that is some and hill I think we were heading downhill. And oh, I remember, that's a it was, it was proper, it was the only time I've ever been chased out of town. <laughs> so I remember that, that happened with Radiohead in the, in the, in the Barras. Right. And they, they were supporting James. And they were on a couple of songs, this and that. And somebody in the creek had smoked back then and say. Somebody threw a fag at Tom York. Yeah. And you know what he sounds like a, a Star Wars baddie. Or, you know, that kind of real plummy English accent, you know? He's a bit like, who, it was almost about who threw that stone, you know, Monty Python. Right. And, uh, and obviously there's whatever, 5,000, 4,000 Glaswegians up for it. In there. So just there was this hail of just stuff, you know, paint, yeah. piss, cans, everything. And then they get taken off the stage and then there was security outside there. Uh, you know, it was the mezzanine for the dressing rooms, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I secured it, and that was it. Never came back on. And then James yeah. came on, and everything was cool. But that was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. But uh, well, with Glasgow, so 
I think I said to you in my email, you were my first gig ever, proper. Yeah. So it was 1991, I think it was June, it was SECC. Yeah. And uh, the High was supporting, and I think it was a Glasgow band called The Apples. That's right, yeah, The Apples, yeah, I remember them, yeah. It was our first, I mean, I would have been 15 maybe, so for us to get in as well and, and all that. And then I think, as you were saying, with your projection shows, and something that stuck with me as well, and I do it in my radio show now, I always liked how you'd clips of vocals, you know, like before you come on and, you yeah, know. Like little samples kind of, and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was yeah. brilliant. But well, we I, always, in the early recordings, the early, because I used to record all the Inspiral's demos, I produced the early demos and recordings that we did. So even on the early uh, cassette tapes, we'd have like four songs on a cassette and like the cow demo that came out on cassette, had cows mooing in between the tracks. Like the track would stop and then you go, and then the next song would start. So we're always um, we're always very arty like that in terms of putting things, you know, in the gaps. Um, and a lot of it was, I think for, for that period, you talk about the, there was, uh, we had some, like we had clips from porno films, like audio, <laughs> video, like people shagging between the records, between <laughs> the songs, you know what I mean? And, and all that. And then we did one gig in, um, well, we didn't actually do the gig. We turned up at a, a gig in Cardiff, um, probably the year before that, probably 1990, maybe, early 1990. And we walked into the venue in the afternoon and realised, in our opinion, it was a death trap. There was no fire escapes. There was one way in, one way out into a basement. Um, the rider wasn't there. And we were just, part of it was us being a bit deeperish. You know, we were coming towards the end of a long tour. Yeah. Um, but part of it was that we just thought this isn't a safe gig to do. So we just left town. We didn't do the gig. And the promoter, you know, as you can imagine, was pissed off about it when he arrived at the venue. And he left us um, a message on our answer machine in this, you know, beautiful Welsh accent in spiral carpets. Bunch of fucking wankers. It was like that. That's how it was. You know, it was like, and it went on and on and on. He fucking hated us. So for the next couple of years, we used that as a coming on tape. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> which you know in hindsight I mean yeah we should have stuck around and discussed it with him we just left town but we were, we were being a bit deaverish and yeah, yeah. you know um, in hindsight we probably would have done it a different way in this you know today but, so um, how, how did it all kind of get together then so was it sort of late 80s bunch of mates or was it good musicians stroke strangers um, well the Inspiral started in I think 1982, 83, as um, the name for the band in Spirals. And that was Graham and Stephen, Stephen the singer, Stephen Holt, Graham on guitar, and then various friends that kept changing in the lineup. But they weren't really like a gigging band as such. They were, they were um, you know, they did a, they used to rehearse in Graham's dad's garage next to the house. They did a couple of gigs locally in pubs and things like that. Um, and around about that time, I was working in Ashton Underline, which is another neighbouring town of Oldham. Yeah. And I was working in a furniture company and I was a company director for some funny reason. Um, and it meant that I'd, I was able to take over a lot of the space in the factory and make it into a little recording studio and rehearsal studio. So I always had bands coming in to record little demo tapes and, you know, to do a three hour rehearsal session, or whatever. And sometime in, 85 towards the end of 85 i got a call from this band in oldham saying we want to record a demo down at your studio uh, we're called the inspiral carpets 
So they came down. So my first, I think I did two or three sessions recording the Inspirals, two or three songs at a time. At least two tapes that were recorded. And then by the third one, I said, what about if I bring this electric organ in? Because I loved what the sound they were making. They were a punk band, no keyboards in it. It was just four-piece, drums, bass, guitar, vocals, shouty vocals, noisy yeah. guitar, garagey bass, and, you know, the drummer was all right. At the beginning, it was Chris Goodwin, a mate of mine, who did a bit of drumming with them. But um, it really appealed to me, because I was really into the spirit of punk and the sound of punk. So I loved what they're doing, but I just thought, if, if I could bring my electric organ, the Farfisa, into that picture, yeah. it would be a classic 60s garage punk band, like yeah. the Stooges. Or, you know, the seeds. So we just tried it out one night. I just, you know, I've suggested to Graham we should try it. Because by that point, we were pretty close mates and we got to know each other quite well. And uh, we brought the organ in one night and it sounded brilliant. And that was it. It was just, you know, the rest was history. Um, but things started happening fairly fast after that because we had the advantage of our own studio. Yeah. We were able to record tapes, you know, in the afternoon. And by evening, we could have it played on local radio. Wow. Do you know what I mean? And and to say that was the mid eighties, late eighty six, eighty seven, we were able to do that. Yeah. That was phenomenal for a band to be able to do that at the time. I mean, we're at a stage now, aren't we, in music culture where you can do that. Easy. But we were doing it back then in the eighties with cassette tapes and the four track cassette recorder, which I still got over here. I've got everything that I ever everything I ever owned is still here in this house, yeah. <laughs> I've got everything. I've got the tapes I'm talking about, the cassette tapes are piled up there. All the transparencies that I talked about, still got them over here so it's um but yeah that, it, they came to me as some of them were friends but they were pretty new people to me yeah. um but then we became great friends and from then on we just became brothers you know craig joined the band two weeks before i joined um and it just seems like from there every day or every week there was something to be excited about there's yeah. something new happening there was a development We've got a gig, not just in Alden, we're playing in Manchester, we're doing Corbiers, we're doing, we're supporting James at Free Trade or whatever. We, it just built and built and built yeah. at a really nice level for the next two or three years. You know, every week there's something to celebrate. Yeah. And then, you know, a big turning point was John Peel getting involved when we put our first record out because right away people around the country knew who we were. Yeah. You know, the... The pull that, that guy had was massive on it, you know, in terms of, you know, if he played your, if you were an unsigned band and he played you on his show on a Tuesday night, you could guarantee that by Wednesday afternoon, you'd be getting the record companies phoning you up or yeah. people wanted to book you to come and play in Sheffield or wherever. So Peel getting involved was massive. Yeah. And then ultimately, you know, signing with Mute Records was the best decision we could have, could have made at that time because all the majors wanted to sign us. Yeah. All the major labels were offering us as much money as we wanted. And, you know, they were proper whining and dining us for a period, which was really nice. But we were just wary of other bands in our position that had signed to majors and then suddenly found themselves dropped yeah. after album number one. I think it happened to the wedding present because they, they, were, they, were they, they were helping us out a lot. The wedding present, I'm sure they put a record out on a major label and were they on WEA or something like that? Possibly, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure. But So we were aware that, that that could happen because these major labels wanted, you know, they, they were putting out records by Wham and people like that. So they, they were they were looking at selling millions of units of an album rather than, 
you know, if you were potentially going to sell 50,000, that wasn't enough, you know. So, mm-hmm. anyway, but Mute Records were a big independent company. We met Daniel Miller, fell in love with him. He fell in love with us and we signed with him. And it's probably the best business decision we ever made, really, that signing mm-hmm. with Mute. Because to this day, even though, I mean, Mute dropped us in early 95, they, you know, right. they let us go. Um, but to this day, we're still connected to Mute like that yeah. on, a, on a weekly basis. We're still in touch with them. They're, they're helping us to develop projects and, you know, it's it's very much, we're very much part of the Mute family still and um, and we're not legally tied to them in any way, you know what I'm saying, but we just, we're, we're family, they're, they're family and um, it's a beautiful relationship. Well, they had some great bands, right? So Mute had Depeche Mode, right? Back then, the big bands on Depeche, sorry, the big bands on Mute when we signed were Depeche Mode, Erasure, That's right. um, Nick what? Cave, I think Nick Cave was on there, um, yeah, he was Nick Kevin Bad Seeds, Diamanda Galas, Einstein Zender, Noah Barton, Lieback. So it, was, it had this mad roster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were looking at him thinking, right, so if we Simon Muff Winwood, Muff was, uh, I think it was called CBS at the time, mm. and Muff was working with people like Terence Trent Darby, but Muff was the head of A&R and brother of Steve Winwood, lovely bloke, me and him became great friends. But, you know, Muff wanted to sign us this label that had all these massive household names. And we had, you know, we were, we were looking at being on a label with Depeche and Erasure, who weren't, you know, even though they were successful, they weren't typical pop groups. They both had the, you know, the, um, you know, the quirks. You know what I mean? Like Martin Gore going on stage with a leather miniskirt on and all this kind of stuff made us realise that this was a label that wasn't going to try and style us or make us into something that we weren't. You know what I mean? Yeah, we, yeah. Were, we were just, we were quite simply a psychedelic, you know, garage band from Oldham. Uh, we weren't particularly good on our instruments. You know, sometimes we'd be out of tune, we'd be, you know, but they weren't going to mess with us. Mute, yeah. Mute just did not mess with us at all, um, unless we wanted some help or some input, and then we got it. But it, that's why it was such a great decision to make, because we were left to make, we, we put the Life album out, and then the second album was proper dark, Beast Inside. Great album. Yeah, really I, good. I, I, you know, one of my favourite songs. I think a lot of major labels wouldn't have let us put that out. Yeah. I think how, how dark it is in parts. To say that the year before we were doing This Is How It Feels and Move and Joe and, you know, upbeat. Yeah. Up pop, and then suddenly we're, we're making these really morose and, you know, beautiful but, but dark yeah. pieces of music. And Mute just let us do it. And then by album three and four, we decided that we wanted to up the, the garageness but make it more contemporary. Yeah. So we brought Pascal Gabriel in. Pascal, he was introduced to us by Daniel Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pascal Gabriel had done a lot of work with um, who do you work with? So, some of the big dance acts at the time. Can't remember now, but some of, some of the big like S Express stuff like that. Yeah, He'd yeah. been producing a lot of that cool new dance music. So we decided to make an album or two albums we did with, with Pascal, where he brought our you know psychedelic garage pop and hooked it up with like tight beats you know it really well, it was a lot brighter wasn't it, it yeah. was a lot, you know but we didn't lose anything to me we, we didn't lose um we didn't lose any any of our punk energy with pascal and and we still had our beautiful epic you know ballads in there as well when we needed them well yeah pascal helped us to be a, you know a relevant top 20 band yeah. even though we looked like we belonged in <laughs> San Francisco from 1968 or whatever you know we were, we're, as, we're as credible as uh, all the, the modern bands at that, yeah. that time it was the yeah, sample 
the, the sample for Irresistible Force is just brilliant, you know. And, and I remember when you, I think it was, the crowd got so excited, right? We were, I saw you at the bars and the roadie come on and he obviously had to test. Yeah. That sample was working. Crowd right. went bananas. It just Didn't kept off when he's testing. Yeah. It was like, wow. And you I know. can't remember where that sound came. I can hear it in my head, but um, great sample. Or well, yeah, I think I think that's probably Pascal Gabriel that created that noise in the studio. I'm sure that you know, probably taking some was it like an organ noise, but then with loads of I can't remember if it was organ bass or guitar bass, but Pascal. It's yeah. so um, almost it's quite wowy. What I yeah. was, and then the, and then the vocals going almost Marquis Smith, and then it was so pleasing that then you did something with Marquis Smith. You know, that's it's right, like, yeah. It's great. Yeah. You know, yeah. really smart. Yeah, happy days. And, and out of the albums, then, is there particular favourites that you've got out of the the sort of canon? Is there ones you like more than others, or do you drift between them? I don't listen to them much. I mean, we did the album playbacks recently, the Inspirals. Yeah, yeah. One, oh, one yeah. every Thursday for five five or six weeks. Um, I must say, albums three and four, even though they were our most successful sort of merge into each other and I, I can't always tell you what was on each one yeah whereas all the other albums have got their own standalone character and story in my head you know what i'm saying so yeah. i still see dunk four as our first album yeah in, in a really unusual way because it only ever came out on cassette it was the first 11 song recording session we ever did i recorded it in the little studio on four track and it came out on cassette years ago but it sort of disappeared into folklore yeah over the years you know what i mean it was like became almost a legend about who remembers Dung Four, this cassette with 11 songs on it. And then in, um, I think it was 2015, I managed to, I found the original Betamax Stereo Master, believe it or not, because that's what I was mastering onto for some reason. I've still got the machine that translates that into audio over here, a a Sony machine that's, it's like, um, it's one of the world's first digital to analog converters. Yeah. And that used to take the analog sound and put it onto a Betamax tape, and that was a stereo master. Yeah. I found the tape, I found the Sony uh, PCM, I borrowed a Betamax off somebody, and the results for that, or the results of that, was this. So this came out in, um, I think 2015 we put this out. Yeah. Signed copy. Brilliant. And it meant that for the first time ever, our first proper recording session with 11 songs on it, came out on vinyl and uh, we did the old, I went through our scrapbooks and archives and put together a real nice gatefold sort of presentation with. That's amazing. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, how, how can how can that, for somebody like me that's a proper order and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of our history. Yeah, yeah. Like that is one of our finest things, one of our finest moments, you know what I mean? Um, the Life album, again, beautiful because it took, Three or four years of writing those songs and working them, and you know, taking around the, the country. So that that life album was a really important document of what happened between the weekend we recorded this at the end of '87 and the time it came out. I think it's spring of '99. One of the life came out. Yeah. So again, a beautiful document of the first few real years of the band's um, journey. Beast inside. You know, I can remember quite a lot about recording that. I can remember where I was in my mind. It was the first time the band had started travelling around the world, you know, when we record, when we wrote it. Yeah. So the ideas were coming from 
trips to concentration camps, believe it or not. Uh, one of, you know, in, in some parts of the record. And then um, <clears throat> new people were meeting around the world rather than writing about people from our own town or people that work near the mill, the studio. I was writing about people that I was meeting across the world. And so Beast Inside, again, you know, the, the, the memories and to me, the spirit of that album is the band seeing the world for the first time and maturing, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of maturity, a lot more mature than what we've done previously. Then albums three and four, as I said, some amazing moments on there, like Saturn Five, obviously one of our biggest hits. And well, I can't always remember what album that was on. Uh, our fourth album, which Saturn Five was the Devil Hopping, no? Was that our fourth one? Yeah, so it's Revenge of the Goldfish and then Devil yeah. Hopping. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the last studio album recorded in uh, 2015, 2016, the you know the the definitive Inspiral Carpets album. Not so the what do they call it, eponymous. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've got it, but that was an album that recorded, you know, in in recent years on very low budget, and it's amazing. You know, the, the work that we did on that is beautiful, and it's the last yeah. recordings that Craig Gill ever did with us, obviously. Yeah. So again, that's um, a very magical album for me. Uh, if I was to pick one, and it, if I if I was to say right, that there's only one album that the Inspirals ever did, take away all the others. Um, I think it'd be Life. Mm. I think life is the one that most symbolises what we could do and what we're all about, you know what I mean? So, yeah, life, the first one. But, yeah, I'm proud of everything we did, really. Oh, it should be. And then what about the touring side of things then? Like, you went from small venues to, well, the first time I saw you, you know, you're in the biggest sort of stadium or arena in Scotland. So, like... It happened pretty quick, that. It happened quick. You know, it seemed like... Because we were always going out on a tour I mean there's one point we're putting a, a single out every two months you know I think it, from I'm not good on dates but you know from putting um, find out why Joe move she comes in the fall this outfields it was like every two months we're putting a record out mm. so we're always out gigging and you could feel like every time we went out you know we'd come and do a gig in Glasgow but then next time we went up there we'd, you know, we'd be playing our headline gig and it'd be a little club uh, I can't remember where it was. It wasn't tut, so I can't remember. But, uh, it just seemed like with every few months we were going out back to the same city and doing the next size venue up. Yeah, yeah. And then ultimately the, the SECC, which I've got a feeling that might have been the night before our GMX gig. Is that right? Could have been. Uh, it, well, this was '91. When did you? do All oh, right, okay, yeah, that was uh, yeah the year after. Uh, I remember after the the night after we did that SEC, we decided that we wanted to leave town as soon as we came off stage at the SECC. And it was the first time ever, the only time in our career, where the venue was that big that we were able to have the cars packed, parked in the venue. Right as you came off stage on the steps, our cars were there, these limos, <laughs> waiting to take us back to Manchester, you know what I mean? <laughs> the one and only time. But I felt like a proper rock and roll star that night. Yeah. You know, to be coming off stage... Thank you. Good night, Glasgow. Good night. You know, red stripes, sweat, uh, straight into the limo. Manchester, please drive. You know, it was just like proper rock and roll, you know. And some bands do that every night, don't they? But for us, we did it that once and it was, uh, yeah, it felt good, man. It felt good. Really cool. Yeah, so it, it happened quickly. I mean, probably in the space of 12 months from playing relatively small clubs a bit, but playing to thousands of people. And then, you know, internationally as well, some of the gigs we did abroad, I mean, I think the biggest we ever did, we played the River Plate Stadium in Buenos Aires oh. um, with Paul Simon. We supported Paul Simon. Jesus. We're, we're, we're massive in Argentina. Uh-huh. 
it's mad, isn't it? That that's a, a really strange moment in our history again. That when we had a hit out there with um, this out feels probably became a bit of a hit on, on the radio, and it was still so close to the Falklands War. Yeah, it happened earlier in the eighties, wasn't it? So it was only a few years previously that this we'd been at war with that country. So it wasn't on the it wasn't on the, the venue circuit or the tour circuit for most bands from you know the states or, or the UK. So because we had a hit record, we thought we'd go down. We got invited down to do um, a TV show and a couple of little club gigs. And because we, we made because we made the, the journey, we went down. We were just received really well. We didn't get any sense of um, you know negativity whatsoever. Not everybody embraced the fact that this British band that they heard on the radio had come to Argentina. So I think we're one of the first bands to to break that barrier and do it um and we did a tv show which at the time was like a massive argentinian television show we did a live performance on it and a little into i think and so we came back to the uk and then suddenly we, we had this massive hit record in argentina so within a couple of months they were saying we need you to come back Great. and we've got you this gig at the river plate stadium supporting paul simon so <laughs> <laughs> incredible so we're just, and we're walking down the street in Argentina and people recognise us because they'd seen us on this TV show <laughs> which at the time people described it to us as saying it's like um, Argentina's version of Wogan do you remember how big the Wogan yeah, show yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like the Argentinian Wogan show so we're walking down the street people run out of shops like hey it's Barrel Gap it's <laughs> and, then, and, and then the other beautiful thing was that when we got back together with Steve because Tom left the band Tom Ingle left the band in 2011 and Steve and all rejoined the band we, had, we invited Steve to come back in um, so Steve's the one who sung on the early recordings including yeah. Dung Four you know Steve did all this stuff with us back yeah. in the day so Steve rejoins the band um, I'm guessing 2013 right and bear in mind his, his last gig with the Inspirals before he left at the at late 88 he left 1988 his last gig was a pub in London uh, where the support band was Jesus Jones, who were unknown at the time. And there was like probably 30, 40 people in this pub. That was the last gig that Steve did. Um, and Steve decided to leave the band and move on. He was about to get married and he had other commitments, etc. Um But then his next gig, his first gig back with the band, was back in Argentina. We got invited back to Argentina in 2013 to support Interpol in a massive event in the city, an outdoor event in the city. I can't remember the name of the stadium, but that was Steve's next gig with the Inspirals after spending 20 years away from the band. It was just beautiful. So we've got, we've got a real, a real bond with Argentina, you know, the Inspirals and, and, and the Argentinian fans, we've got a real bond and thing. I think I'll be there forever. That's to be honest with you. Um, I bet he was shitting himself, wasn't he? He pulled it off. Yeah. He pulled it off and he was just, I think it's a real testament to the kind of person. He's very down to earth, Steve. And, you know, it's like all through the times when he wasn't with the band, you know, we were still in contact with him. We were still, you know, never saw him, we'd, you know, with um, our drink with him, we'd see him at a gig. So we never really fell out. He just, you know, he, he chose to step away and we miraculously became this massive band and went on to great things and you know later on in life he was able to rejoin us which is, is great and you know at this moment in time the band still it does exist it's a business we, we're not planning on doing any gigs our drummer Craig passed away sadly four years ago yeah. Um, so yeah we've no intention we've got, there's no talk yet about doing anything live but 
yeah. we are an active business there's still things to discuss on a weekly basis to do with you know records coming out or usually people want to use our music on compilation albums yeah, you know, yeah. now, now that's why i call dad rock <laughs> shit like that but um so yeah there's there's always conversations going on that in spiral carpets related but at this moment in time i i can't see a point where we'll do it live you know yeah it's not a discussion we're having yet yeah um but we're still you know we're still very much the brotherhood yeah and, uh, it'd be nice if you could find a way but you can understand also just the emotions yeah like with craig as well it's you know it's a hard one because do you do it for him and you know in, in a positive way or do you just you know protect that whole thing you know it's yeah. a tough decision tough i think decision. a lot of it is because the band we weren't you know even up until the point where craig died we weren't really a full-time band we were there people knew us we were putting records out but we all had other professions yeah obviously i'm doing a lot of radio work and a lot of djing and graham at the time was working for sjm the concert promoters and we all had other jobs and the Inspirals was almost like this really cool hobby that we had, you know, towards the end until yeah, yeah, yeah. three or four years ago. Um, if it had been a full-time band that employed a lot of people all year round, I think by now we would have probably felt the, um, the pressure to get it back, you know, get working again. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I look, I look at bands like James and Charlatans who are fairly much ongoing you know, <clears throat> businesses. And I know the charlatans have lost a couple of people tragically and yeah. they've carried on and I, I can understand why really because it's not just about the people in the band, it's about the entourage, you know, the, the, the crew, the management. It's, 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 I think if we'd have been a full-time band at the point when Craig died, it's a full-time band, I think we might have decided to carry on um, but because it was just this really amazing hobby that we had. Yeah, it's yeah. A brilliant hobby, isn't it? You know, <laughs> being one of the inspirals. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm thinking about time as well. I need to let right. you go and, and get on with your life. Um, there was a couple of wee things I was just going to touch on, so I'll kick myself if I didn't ask you. So, yeah, go on. Um, obviously, the Noel and, and Mark Coyle stuff as well. Like, yeah. what what was it like being with them in the early days? I mean, did you did you spot anything special, or was it just two guys that what were you? Um, Noel came to us first. Um, he, came, he auditioned. So when Stephen left at the end of 88, Noel was the first person that popped up out of our, our fans and said, I'd like to audition to be a singer. And we all thought it was really funny at the time because we knew him as a fan. He, he'd had a broken leg not long before. So he was hobbling around on crutches for quite a while. Right. Our gigs with a broken leg. Um, and then we heard that he fancied auditioning. So we took him into the rehearsal room on the night of the Lockerbie disaster, believe it or not. Right, yeah. And... Yeah, we, we, we decided we didn't really like his voice, his style of singing, but we loved him as a bloke. We knew him already. And we said, look, why didn't he come work as our roadie? Um, but full-time, he was working every day, like working in the office, you know, helping us at rehearsal rooms or whatever. So we spent the next, I think, four years, four and a half years with him uh, by our side during everything we did. Mm. Rehearsals, gigs, obviously. If we had meetings, we'd take him with us. If we went to see the bank manager, we'd have Noel with us. Um, Coyley came in a little bit later because I think he was part of the the OSPA crew. Um, so he ended up becoming our monitor engineer. Mm -hmm. So when we were touring in the early 90s, Noel was drum tech or guitar tech, a bit of keyboards. Um, and Coyley was doing our, I think he was doing our on stage monitors. 
And then out front, we had Diane Barton, who was uh, an amazing sound engineer. She's still very busy doing the same thing. Well, actually, she's not now, is she? Because of the lockdown. Yeah. But, um, but they, yeah, Noel and, and Mark clicked like that because they were, even though, you know, Noel was close with the band, it was very much, there is a division because, you know, some of the time he'll have to go, go and do an interview and Noel will be left at the venue, whatever. And um, But they became really close and spent a lot of time together. Uh, while we're out on the road um, and I remember they, they were working on songs together you know they they jam we'd do the, the sound check and then we might clear off to get some food from the local chippy and Noel and Mark would stick around jamming songs on the keyboard and um, guitars and that so we knew that they were making music and we knew that Noel was a songwriter because all through our time in the music you know he was a songwriter. He had songs. He, he made. He wrote songs. He came to us when he came to audition. He had songs that he'd given us on cassettes yeah. that he'd done on his four track at home. So we always knew that Noel was a songwriter and ultimately wanted to go off and do his own thing. But we never could have imagined. I think he could never have imagined how successful he became at that that thing. Um, and we were with him in America when he phoned home for his daily chat with his mum, and she said. Um, Liam's in a band. Liam Williams started a band, and uh, I I remember his reaction at that moment was, he's like, he couldn't believe it. Our oh, Liam's in a band. Yeah. And we all knew that he'd end up. We all knew Liam was going to end up in a band. He looked like a pop star from the moment yeah. we first saw him. You know what I'm saying? Such a beautiful face, and we're just like, he's going to be a pop star. That fellow. We thought, you know, we knew Liam was going to be a pop star. But yeah, so Noel came back from that tour, and that's the famous bit where the the rain asked Noel to manage them. And Noel said, no, I won't manage it. I'll be in the band. So he sort of managed it as well. I'll be in the band, but let's change the name as well. And they became Oasis and, and that was it. So then we had a period where Noel was in Oasis and still working for us. Right. As, as we, he was developing the Oasis machine and writing the songs and getting things together. You know, that, that overlap was probably 10, 11 months, maybe maybe a year. I can't remember. A fairly long period of time where that's what Noel did. When he wasn't with us, he was, you know, building his Oasis um, Thing. Um, and then eventually when we let him go I think early 94 or early 93 yeah, uh, we decided to let him go because by that point he was totally focused on his band yeah. I think he was a bit finding it a bit tedious setting up other bands equipment you know yeah. what I mean and watching other bands dick around in dressing rooms I think he, 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 he thought it was time for him to do it and we could see it was time for him to do it so we gave him a golden handshake of a couple of grand cash and sent him on his way and Still stuck around to support him, you know, with the um, the new band. You know, we still we went to the gigs to watch him and all this. So we're very supportive uh, in that little period. And then suddenly, bang, through the roof, moved to London, and that was it. They were we weren't part of his uh, we weren't part of his well, we were part of his story, obviously, but we weren't part of his day to day after that. Um, yeah, it's still one of my proudest things. I can say that we were part of the Oasis story and. You know, we helped Noel, we helped Noel to learn about the industry and, mm. and he still gives us a lot of credit for that. You know, when, whenever I speak to him and I've seen him do it with other people where he'll, he'll bring you up, that his, his happiest, the happiest years of his working life were those two yeah. or three years he spent with us, you know, mm. before he created Oasis <laughs> because he didn't get any shit. He got yeah. treated well, he got good money, we looked after him, it was a laugh and we saw the world together, you know, so I think that's still, um, we saw the world for the first time together, should I say. Because that's a big thing, you know, when you, in, in some professions, you don't really get that, you know, that, that, that bonus of travelling the world with your best mates yeah. and seeing a lot of countries, meeting yeah. a lot of people and 
it's just the, the most beautiful way of seeing the world. And we did that, you know, a bunch of working class kids yeah, yeah. seeing the world for the first time together. And, and Noel was there with it, you know, with us. So nice, uh, nice memories, you know. Well, I, th I think there's two things there. I think doing it with your mates, definitely, you know, because we work, I mean, years ago, I used to work with you Sushi and they sent me to Japan, but I was myself. Yeah. Right? You just feel, whereas if I was with my mates, it would have been the best thing ever. But also with you guys and stuff, I'm sure you maybe like had a local fixer or, you know, they, they show you the best places to yeah, go. Totally, and, yeah. You know, but everywhere. You see it, you know, yeah. you waste a minute, you know. Everywhere without exception. And I can still remember some of them, even though I've not seen or heard of them for 25 years. We had a guy in Japan called Nobby who uh -huh. um, he worked for the local record company, I think, at the time. And he ended up working for the record company anyway, but he just really took it on himself to chaperone us around, get us whatever we wanted, take us to yeah. wherever the cool electronic shops where he'd take us to and take us to the best restaurants. And so Nobby in Japan, a guy called Easy, Evie, Easy in uh, Argentina, Easy. He, he looked after us out there. And so he had all these people in each area that had completely, yeah. come on lads, let's uh, get some food sorted out. Great. I had some great friends doing, doing that. And, uh, yeah, it's just the best way to see the world. I can't think of a better way to see the world yeah. than being in a band that is successful with your, with your best mates, you know, at the side of you. It's just the most amazing way of seeing the world. You know what I mean? Right, some very final quick-fire questions then. So, best song of the 90s? Um, I think for me, Losing My Religion, R.E.M. Great song, yeah. It's, it's just what, they are still... One of my favourite bands of all time, if not the, you know, my favourites change. It's like children in it. Yeah. I, lo I love REM. I love Doves. I love The Fall. Uh, yeah. I love The Beach Boys. Uh, but it's like, I think REM is consistently the first band yeah. or record that, that springs to mind. Do you know what I'm saying? When, when you ask me, um, yeah, I think Losing My Religion's the one for, for me there. That's a good one. Yeah. Best album? Uh, I think probably out of time, REM, because that's the one that, had that track on it and uh i followed rem since since day one since minute one right yeah. I, I saw them i think the first time i saw them would have been on it might have been the old gray whistle test or the I tube think, i think that was their first tv wasn't it yeah it, i yeah. think it might have been the tube actually but uh, and um they started they did a they started touring within a couple of weeks or within a week or so they were doing some uk gigs and the first time they played manchester was the gallery okay which was a little 150 capacity, 200 capacity. Uh, and I went to that gig and it was just like, that band was just otherworldly to me. Do you know what I mean? You couldn't tell what it was singing. It was beautiful. They had the long blonde hair. Um, they had that Paisley Underground vibe that I was really into at the time. So I was just blown away from minute one of, of R.E.M. and just followed them right up to, like even now, I could, I could just sit watching Michael Stipe talk or sing. And a lot of times, I do, you know, you just get that moment where you just think, right, I'm sat just waiting for uh, my wife to come in with a bottle of wine or whatever. I just, let's just watch R.E.M. when they did Unplugged. Yeah. You see that on TV, Unplugged? Yeah. And when they did Love Is All Around yeah. by the Trogs. Okay, that's just one of my go-to magical moments in the history of music. Yeah. And Mike, Mike, Michael Stipe doesn't even do the lead vocal on it. Is it Mike Mills? Mike Mills, Mills sings okay. it. And Stipe does the most beautiful backing vocal I've ever heard in my life. Just yeah. So that band just con constantly pop up, and anybody anybody asks me favorite this, favorite that. Yeah. So 
I think um, out of time, and then automatic for the people came out next, and yeah. that's by that point they were way they'd gone right stratospheric, and yeah. everybody knew who they were. Everybody in the world, it was just the most popular album of all time. I think for a while, but I think out of time for me was the one where this little psychedelic band that I followed from day one not only produced an album that was, you know, full of beautiful songs, but the man in the street was starting to hear about them now. And yeah. I was right. I was right. You know, it's like that, that feeling in it. I knew they were good. And road, three road, or whatever. road movies, just a great, a great live video. You know, yeah. I watch that. Or as you say, if you've got nothing to do, as yeah. if it was road movie, I watch, I think it's yeah. just so, a real glam rock. Yeah. It's a modern piece of glam rock. It's brilliant. Do you think it'll get back together? I think maybe. I mean, now that Michael Stipe's doing some new recordings, you know, he's yeah. doing stuff with Aaron Dessler and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm hopeful. Me I'm too, hopeful. yeah. I've got a feeling it's they will. They never seem to be any... The, the break never seems to have any acrimony with it. No? Whereas all these other bands that have split up and said, no, never getting back together, yeah. like The Police and Stone Roses. There was always that element of there'd been a fallout. Whereas with REM, there's still a lot of love in the camp, it seems like. Well, they did it in the best way, right? And in one of the documentaries, A, they split the songwriting just four ways, no matter what anyone did. So that yeah. should solve a lot of problems. Yeah. And in the second one, I thought it was a lovely, I think it was REM for MTV. It's quite a long documentary, and or VH1 maybe. And they, they, they all say a lovely thing. And I think it's Mike Mills, and he says, I make Peter better, Peter makes Bill better, Bill makes Michael better, Michael makes me better. Yeah. And it just went round in this lovely karmic thing. Some bands are like that, aren't they? Some bands are like, you can tell that the people in that band are all brilliant to what they do and they all know that, they all know the place. Yeah. Um, And I think that makes some bands absolutely perfect, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I hope I hope we'll see it. I mean, maybe Bill Berry won't come back, but the the other three, I'm I'm hopeful they'll do. I mean, even just a one-off. It almost like Led Zeppelin did. Yeah, just totally. Yeah. Off, yeah. You know? So is that best band of the nineties as well? Then yeah, definitely. Yeah, go for even though it started in the eighties, and yeah, yeah I, I, I'm going for REM on all them. And then a couple of wee last ones. Then so big best gig venue. I think you mentioned earlier. Yeah, Barrowlands. Definitely. Um, and I played it a lot of times or, you know, several times with the Inspirals and Clint Boone Experience did it twice. Yeah. We supported Travis there, actually. Did you? Because we had uh, this, another beautiful moment in my career was when, I think I was on the second Clint Boone Experience album. Oh, no, it's the first one. And um, I got an email from Fran Elio. I'd never met, never had any contact. He found me the email address and he sent me an email saying, my name's Fran, I've got a band called Travis. We'd be honoured to share the stage with you on our forthcoming tour. Great. And it was like, fucking hell. So, but yes, yeah, so I did two weeks, three weeks with them, leading up to Christmas in whatever year that would have been, uh, 1999. Yeah, before yeah. 2000, yeah. Yeah, um, and it was when they were just the biggest band in the country. You know, yeah. the, 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 Fran Ealy was just being hailed as the, the, the most amazing songwriter for, for decades, and um, we became great friends, and... Um, yeah, we did Barrowlands two nights. Having said that, one night he told the crowd off. You know, you're talking before about people giving radio edge. Yeah. yeah. So we were supporting. Um, we were doing my support gig at the Barrowlands, and during our gig, a lot of people because they didn't know who we were, and it was quite a quirky band that we had a bit mad at times. And so a lot of the crowd weren't paying any attention. They were talking to themselves. Some of them had the backs to the stage. 
there was a bit of Eklund between songs here and there, but we carried on. It wasn't like it, we, we were in, you know, we weren't having things thrown at us as such. Yeah. And then when Fran came on, they came on Travis and obviously a massive hometown gig. The, the place was rammed. It was fucking going off. Yeah. And after the first song, Fran said, um, I've just got to say, you know, some of you out there um, uh, were really disrespectful uh, to Clint Boone and his band earlier. Um, so just stop acting like a load of cunts. <laughs> Something to this effect. And I know now it's like, that, that, that word's quite out there now, isn't it? You, especially yeah. in Scotland. I mean, it's like one of your favourite <laughs> tributes, isn't it? But um, it, for me, I heard him say, I'm just like, it was when the, the C word was like such, it was like, he's Form. just called, he's just called his, some of his friends, family, you know what I mean? But that's how much he felt about, yeah, yeah, yeah. He loved our band and he didn't like the fact that some people were being a bit, a bit disrespectful, you know what I mean? But yeah, Barrowlands is still my favourite venue that I've ever played at um, for a lot of reasons. I interviewed Jim Kerr of Simple Minds. Oh, yeah. And we got talking about, because I think one of the songs on the last album is called Barrowlands Star. Uh-huh. And it's about, I think it's a song about David Bowie played at Barrowlands. Uh-huh. And one of the stars had fell off the ceiling. The ceiling, yeah. And uh, I think it was David Bowie who picked up and saved it. Daddy, something like that. This story, and I interviewed Jim Kearney and talked to him, and I was saying, I not just saying it because you're from Scotland, but that venue is the most goose bumpy, yeah, place to play at. Um, partly because of where it is, it's an unusual location. Yeah, yeah. The history of it as the old um, roller skating rink or whatever it was. Like. Was it ballroom? Was it, was it ballroom? Yeah, ballroom. Was it roller skating as well? Uh, it might have been. It was definitely a ballroom because it's a strong. Yeah. Dance floor, right? Yeah, and at the back of the room, I think I think they still got all the lockers, haven't they? Where people used to store the shoes, or they did have. Possibly, yeah, yeah. At one point. So yeah, Barrowlands, um, favorite venue. But then other iconic gigs. I suppose headlining the Reading Festival in nineteen ninety, August Saturday night. We were the main band, and at that point, that was the biggest gig in the country because Glastonbury wasn't that big then. Yeah, yeah. Reading was the big one. And yeah. we headlined it on a Saturday night, 1990, in August. And it was like, we've arrived. Probably won't get any bigger than this, but <laughs> there you go. Great. And then just so we can let people know what you're up to now and how they can reach you. And obviously yeah. I'll put all the stuff you've said in the show notes and, and promote that. But yeah, what, what do you want people to know about what you're up to right now and how can they catch up with you? Right. The main thing I'm doing is a radio show on Excess Manchester which is a drive time show, so I'm four till seven every weekday afternoon. And then I do a really cool party show on Saturday night on the same station, seven till ten. Uh, basically, the station's an alternative, an indie sort of guitar music-led station. Um, the playlist is brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely just phenomenal. Uh, but Saturday night, I just play three hours of every genre of music, from hip-hop, reggae, soul, electronic, Great. jazz, as, as well as your indie stuff. And that's uh, Saturday night, 7 until 10. Quite proud of that show. And then apart from that, um, I'm doing the Disco Rescue live stream DJ set every Friday night, 8 till 10. And if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, at The Real Boon. That's probably the best way of keeping in touch with me. Um, and what else? I mean, I've got a website that's uh, or an online store, boonarmy.com. Yeah. If you want to buy any of my T-shirts and mugs or phone cases, whatever else I've come up with, and the art, I'll do all that, obviously. That's... Uh, all available on those, all personalised, handmade, cow art. Brilliant. By myself. So that's me, I think, at the moment. Nice. And then a bit of DJing. <laughs> <laughs> as of when it might come back. 
I'm, I'm getting bookings for next year. You know, the, a lot of yeah. the gigs I've lost this year have been rescheduled for next year. So basically, you know, I've lost 10 months, 11 months of work, but yeah. it's already come back into the diary. But the reality is it might all get cancelled again. So it's somebody's, yeah, it's, it's, but it's somebody whose main income has been, you know, from going DJing to hundreds of people yeah, yeah. clubs. I, I might have to just um, assume that something else is going to be uh, happening. But yeah, at the, at the moment, we're all healthy in the boon house. That's the main thing. We're all healthy. We're not starving. We've got a nice garden out there. So we can hang about it. We've got some great weather, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but not even know because I'm stuck in this bedroom and you're stuck in there, don't you? <laughs> it looks like a really posh apartment, though, doesn't it? But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it looks bad behind the screen. <laughs> no, it's great to talk to you anyway. And, um, you do, man. Thank you. Keep in touch. Yeah. I've got your details. I'll just keep in touch, yeah? I will, of course. And, and let us know when it's out and I can uh, give you a hand plugging it. Yeah, I will do. And yeah, if you're down in Brighton, let me know. You can get a social yeah. distance beer on the beach. Do an elbow bump. <laughs> well, listen, take it easy. Let's you catch can. up again sometime soon, yeah? Definitely, anytime. Leave it. Thanks for Cheers. What a buzz to talk to the legend that is Clint Boone about his 90s experience and much, much more. We could have talked for hours and hours, but hopefully he'll come on the show again soon. Do follow Clint on at the Real Boone on Twitter. Listen to Disco Rescue on Beatstream every Friday and get your cow cards and official Boone Army merchandise on boonarmy.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope that it's filled you with as much joy, nostalgia and happiness that it did for me. Please do share this podcast with your 90s obsessed friends and follow me on at my 90s music podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at my 90s music pod on Twitter. One more thing, please do go to Mixcloud to hear my 90s based radio show. Just search for Supersonic 90s radio show on Mixcloud and you'll find lots of episodes there. Until next time, keep it 90s over and out.